All right. Open your Bibles, if you would. Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39. So we talked about how Genesis is divided into really eight sections. We say two sections, and those two sections are each divided into four separate sections. And so we're on the last of all of them, a man named Joseph. Uh, Last week, we took a brief interlude from Joseph's story to look at Judah's, uh, let's just call them sinful pursuits. Well, today we go back to Joseph. Now, we know uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, We read that already. And last week, we saw that um, when Joseph was sold into slavery, he was then resold to Potiphar. And then his brothers just kind of went on with their lives. Right, And so this is what created that interlude. And as, as far as they were concerned, I think they were just done with Joseph. Right? He was the annoying little brother, and now he was a slave. And, and they made a little money out of him, and now daddy's little boy is gone. And we don't ever have to worry about him again. Well, I think most of us are at least a little bit familiar with the life of Joseph. And we know that that is not true. Even though Joseph's aband- family abandoned him, God has not abandoned him, and they are not done with Joseph. Uh, Well, if you're not familiar with the story, I want to give you the big picture so that we're all on the same page. Um, So some, I think, are are brand new to the scriptures. We have that every week, and others uh, have grown up in this. And so let's just get on the same page with Joseph. We're going to work a little bit ahead uh, in doing this. Um, After Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers... Uh, he was resold to a military leader named Potiphar. Uh, and the whole time, Joseph is, is just faithful to the Lord. He's faithful while he lives in Potiphar's home, and Potiphar gave him authority over pretty much everything in the house. Uh, Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, she wasn't faithful to the Lord like Joseph was. She wasn't faithful to the Lord, she wasn't faithful to her husband, and she certainly wasn't faithful to Joseph. And so his master, her husband, seduced him. And when he wouldn't give in to her seduction, she screamed and said he violated her. Well, Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison, and and while he's in prison, well, then guess what? Joseph is faithful there as well. And like in Potiphar's house, not only was he put in charge of pretty much everything in Potiphar's house, he was put in charge of all the prisoners when he was in jail. Well, eventually, the the king's baker and, and butler were thrown into the prison, and and they had these crazy dreams, and, and, and since the Lord was with Joseph, then Joseph was able to interpret these dreams. And surely that's kind of the way out, right? Because they've got direct access to the king, and so they'll tell the king about him, and, except they didn't. And, and so time passes, and, and Joseph just stays in prison. And, and then suddenly the, the king has these really crazy dreams, and none of his people can interpret them. And and so the king's baker remembers, oh, there's this guy, this Hebrew kid um, named Joseph, and he's able to interpret dreams, and sure enough, he is able to interpret dreams. Now, some would say, wow, that, that's, I want to be an interpreter of dreams. Can I be an interpreter of dreams too? Well, why was Joseph an interpreter of dreams? And I think what we see in the text is the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him, and because he was with him, he would, did some really amazing things. And so Joseph then goes from the jailhouse to the penthouse. I mean, he's put in second in charge of all of Egypt. But remember, he's still a slave. Right? He's, he's second in charge of Egypt, but he's still a slave. And, and I think it's a good time to, 
to remind you, just be careful not to read into the Bible what it doesn't say. Okay, people make this argument, this is really popular in our day, that the Bible endorses slavery. And so they see Joseph and they say, you see, he's a slave and, and he's second in charge. Well, if he's second in charge, why didn't he just get rid of slavery? Why didn't he just say, done with slavery for the whole Egyptian empire? Well, remember last week we talked about there's some text that's descriptive and other texts are prescriptive. And, and so this is descriptive. This is just describing what happened. It's not endorsing what happened. It's just telling us this is what happened. We had a great question, a question in our small group that I ended up posing to our men on Monday night, and the question was, how do you know when a text is descriptive, and how do you know when it's prescriptive? Now, that, man, that's a great question. Well, a lot of it depends on the genre of the book. Okay, Genesis, the, the genre is it's a historical narrative. So it doesn't tell, it tells us what happened, but it doesn't command us to do what happened. And so remember last week, we talked about leveret marriage. Well, it, it tells us what happened in leveret marriage, but we're not commanded to do leveret marriage. You get to a book like Exodus. Moses parted the Red Sea. Are we commanded to part the Red Sea? No. It's just descriptive. This is what happened. So you don't lack faith if you don't walk on water. We see Jesus walked on water. That's descriptive. Okay, it's not prescriptive. Well, it's prescriptive. Well, the epistles would be prescriptive. Lots of commands in there, right? Forgive, bless, be kind, be generous, be hospitable, show love for one another, pursue peace with one another. So everything that happened in Scripture really happened. But not all of it is our commands for us to do. It doesn't endorse it, right? It doesn't expect that you're going to be interpreting dreams. So remember, this is a descriptive passage. So a lot of times as I'm, as I'm working through, you know, descriptive passages, narrative passages like this, I'm trying to figure out what's the application for this, right? But if I, if I you know, the passage I read in Colossians earlier, you know, later on I'm going to say, Do, work at everything with all your heart as of working for the Lord and not for man, Colossians 3.23. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? That's prescriptive. Work at everything with all your heart as of working for the Lord and not for man, and so, uh, so as I'm preaching that, I'm trying to figure, as I'm working through Genesis, I'm going, so where does this apply? Where's the prescriptive part of it? Whereas I'm preaching through, say, Colossians, and you know what I'm trying to figure out? Where's the story in all of this? How do we bring this home to us and to figure all that out? It's one of the, I, I wouldn't say the hardest thing. It's actually a lot of fun to do that. And so let's go back to Joseph. So he's at the beginning of his journey from going from the, the jailhouse to the penthouse, going from being a slave in shackles to eventually being second in charge of all of Egypt. We read a story like this and we know the end. He didn't. As we read through this, I want to emphasize the fact that Joseph is never alone. His success is due to the fact that the Lord is with him. And the Lord is with him, listen, in the darkest time of his life. Okay, so let's just read through our text this morning. Genesis chapter 39. Uh, it's just 23 verses, so let's read all of them through. And then we'll come back and pick them apart. Genesis 39 verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. 
And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Uh, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Well, it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I and, and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. And so she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he had fled, She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. Now, one of the lessons that I immediately took from this text was that if I'm going to see God's presence in my suffering, then I have to look beyond my circumstances and my suffering. Right? Over and over, four times we see in this text, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. Toughest time in his life. And you know what? The Lord is with him. Do you think that Joseph saw that? We don't know. Now, I've, I've divided this chapter into basically three sections. And in each of these sections, it, it just shows us uh, how Joseph lived when life was hard and, and, and unfair. I mean, he did nothing wrong. But what we see over and over and over again is despite the fact that he did nothing wrong, wrong continued to happen to him. And I'm not sure if you notice the parallels, the first five verses and the last three verses. 
In each of these, the Lord is with them. There's success, and that success is recognized by others. And so there's testimony in that. Now, in between those verses, you see Joseph's faith and his integrity, and those, those things are severely tested. And so, again, this is descriptive of what happened, but there's huge application for how we should respond uh, when di- di- difficult times come to us as well. And, and I think we can all agree that it would have been really easy and really understandable for Joseph to blame his dad and his brothers and the Midianite traders and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and the baker and the butler and the jailer. Like, it would have been so easy for Joseph to be the whiner, to be the complainer, talking about (coughs) how difficult life was. And as I read through this, I wondered, (coughs) excuse me, what if Joseph came to my office for counseling? What would I tell him? I mean, he asked for my counsel. Would, would I listen if he complained about how bad life was and how unfair life was? I mean, surely you would, you would just sit there and go, oh, I'm so sorry. It's got to be so difficult. I, I don't know how you do that. And you just get part of that. Or maybe you go to the other extreme and you just rebuke them. You're not trusting God. Quit whining. Gird up your loins like a man. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't complain. You don't see him complaining. You don't see him slacking off. He's got every excuse to make excuses. And he doesn't. What does he do? Point number one is he flourished in his labors. He flourished in his neighbors, with, with his labor, in his labors. You know, it's a beautiful thing when chaos is happening all around you and you're able to be the calm one in the storm. That is a beautiful thing. Joseph didn't just survive this. Joseph thrived throughout. I mean, he literally flourished in his labors. Look what it says in, in verse 1, chapter 39. He says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So nobody's whitewashing what's happening here. Moses, it's almost like chapter 38 doesn't happen, right? The the Judah part. This just picks up right from the end of chapter 37. His brother sold him as a slave to the Ishmaelites who sold him as a slave to Potiphar. I don't know if you just caught that, right? We said Ishmaelites before, and now we're saying Midianites now. So who is it? Is it Midianites or Ishmaelites? Is this a contradiction in Scripture? Is it Ishmaelites or Midianites? The answer is yes. Same group, right? Jacob, what they call him? Israel. Sometimes we see him called Jacob, sometimes we see him called Israel. Sometimes we see it Ishmaelites, sometimes we call Midianites. Okay? It's not a contradiction, same group of people. And as far as Potiphar goes, he's he's wealthy. We know he's wealthy because he's he's able to buy a servant. Sounds like he's able to have a bunch of servants. And, and as a job, he was probably the one who who led the king's executioners. He's in charge of all the guys who are executioning executing people. Look at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. 
Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. He made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. Came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So... Which is kind of funny, right? Like if you have this guy that you bring into your house and everything he does, he's got the Midas touch. He touches it, turns to gold. Wow, touches that, turns to gold. Hey, Joseph, touch this, turns to gold. You know what? You're in charge of everything. Right, that's what it says. Look at verse six. So, because it was so successful, he, he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food in which he ate. And so as Joseph, Joseph flourished in his work, Potiphar became way more successful. He just puts him in charge of everything and except his wife, right? Joseph tells us that later. He's actually not in charge of his wife. And he also is, is as a foreigner, he's not in charge of preparing his food. Why? Because that's how they assassinated people in that day was through food. They poisoned their food. So they'd hire cupbearers like Nehemiah, right? He was a cupbearer to the king. He tasted his food. It's a really important position. And I'm sure Joseph is, is learning a lot of lessons here. Imagine what he, how much he's learned. I mean, he had to ch- exchange this beautiful, very colored tunic, this beautiful coat of many colors, and now he's wearing a slave's garment. He went from the favored son to the favored slave. I mean, as a slave, he would have been forced to learn humility. As a slave, he would have been forced to learn submission. It would have been easy for him to complain. It would have been easy for him to be bitter. It would have been easy for him to have a pity party. It would have been easy for him to question the God of my father's. Never says that. What's it say? The Lord was with him. In fact, that's the theme of this whole chapter. The Lord is with him. Four times, the Lord is with him. Which seems really strange because when we are in the darkest times of our life, what do we think? Where's God? Surely the Lord's not with me right now. But because the Lord was with him, Joseph was successful. Because the Lord was with him, his master recognized it. What did he recognize? Doesn't say. I'm just thinking there has to be something about the way he walked. There has to be something about the way he talked. There has to be something about his work ethic. There's got to be something about his his attitude when he's working hard. And and Potiphar sees this, and and, and the only rationale behind it is this has got to be the work of God. Potiphar's a pagan. And he's going, that's got to be God. Whatever's going on in this guy's life has got to be God. And Joseph, because he's faithful in, in little things, the everyday things, the mundane things, then God gives him greater things. And then the more God gives him, the more God blesses him. And, and not just blesses him, but he blesses those around him. But after great victory, there's often huge temptation. And there's trouble looming. And it starts there at the end of verse six, which is a new paragraph. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Some of y'all know what that's like, right? 
Hard to be beautiful, isn't it? I wouldn't know. I'm just saying it's probably hard to be beautiful. But Joseph was handsome. And Potiphar noticed. I'm sorry, Potiphar's wife noticed. <laughs> yeah, I know, honey. He's pretty fine. No. <laughs> By the way, that, that term there, handsome in form and appearance, it's, it's actually the same exact words that was used for his mom, Rachel. The prom queen, remember? The beloved wife, Jacob's favorite. Same words. Fruit didn't fall far from the tree there. Look at verse 7. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now, now think about this. Potiphar looked at Joseph and what did he do? He blessed him, right? He, he gave him more responsibility. He promoted him. Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph and she tries seducing him. What did Joseph do? Point number two, he fought against her temptations. He fought against her temptations. Remember we talked about, if we, if we were just to read these, these three chapters in particular, all in one shot, in one sitting, what we would see is that, as you get this 38 where, um, I'm sorry, 37, um, and he's sold into slavery, and in 38, this, this black velvet that's laid down, and then 39, this, this diamond that's, J, that's Joseph. Judah's like the, the black, the, the darkness, the, the, the evil that's going on. And, and, then, and then Joseph just shines all the brighter in chapter 39. Judah, remember, he sinfully married a Canaanite woman. And then he hired the services of a harlot. In Joseph's case, in Joseph's case there's temptation to sin, but he refuses. I mean, he says, no, Judah is guilty and then the shining diamond, J Joseph, is innocent. Look at verse 8. But he refused. You should circle those words. And said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You know, one of the things that I just love about Joseph's response is, is the reasons he has for, response, for his responsing, responding the way he does. He, he, he refuses her advances. And then he gives reasons for it. And the, the first reason he refuses is to look around and go, look how blessed I am. And he's a slave. But he's going, look how blessed. How could I sin like that? I mean, look what God, I, I would lose everything. I have so much. Like why, why would I do that? How can I do this with my master, who's your husband? He's blessed me with so much. By the way, that's kind of opposite, right, of, of how Eve responded when the serpent tempted her, which is early Genesis, which was a year plus ago, right, for us when we started that. But again, if you're, if you're just sitting here reading Genesis, you can't help but, but look at Eve, remember, and, and, what, what the, uh, and how she was tempted when the serpent came to her. And, and remember, the serpent got her to remove her focus on all that God had given her. And, and he, he forced her to focus on the, on the one fruit she wasn't allowed to eat. Potentially tens of thousands of trees that she could have eaten from. And he focuses on the one. Well, Jacob does the opposite. He's like, 
There's no way because look, at you're the only thing I can't have. I can have everything else. Why would I do this and lose all of this? And the serpent gets Eve to say, don't worry about all of this. Look at this one thing God doesn't give you. Now, the other reason you see for Jacob's refusal is his relationship with God. How can I sin against my God? And listen, I doubt he would have gotten caught. He probably wouldn't have gotten caught. But, but he's like, no, my relationship with God is too great. Like, why would I do this against my God? By the way, there's no victimless sin, right? Sin is rebellion against God. And Joseph gives two great excuses. And you would think, okay, that's enough, right? It's not. Look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or even be with her. Day after day. This is a constant temptation. Proverbs, when it speaks about the adulterous woman, he, he, it talks about how she flatters with her tongue and she seduces with her eyes. And she's constantly just on the prowl, right? Trying and trying and trying. That's, that's what's going on with Joseph here. This is not a one-time occurrence. Day after day after day, she's seducing him, and he never gives in. Look at verse 11. Now, it happened one day, he went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he went, and he left his garment in her hand and fled, and he went outside. And when she saw that he had fled, his, fled had left his garment in her hand and had fled inside, outside. Wow, she called to the man. The, the term, like, in his hand there, it, it's the same Hebrew word when he talks about Potiphar giving all things in his hand. He, he, he had, she has now his garment in her hand. And, I, and as I read this, and listen, it doesn't say, this is just conjecture, but I wondered if there's a parallel. If Joseph struggled to get away from Potiphar's wife and, as he, and she's holding on to his garment, he's just trying to get away and trying to get away, even if it means he's getting his garment ripped off of him. I wonder if there's a parallel to what that looked like when he was with his brothers. And they, they pulled his coat off. I wonder if he was struggling to keep it on or knowing what they're doing. Is he struggling to, to get away? I don't know. I'm just, I don't think it's an accident here. You know what I mean? Like, I think there was some kind of him struggling with, with getting away in, in this garment. Is, it's actually his outer garment. It's his covering. And, and, and like in our day, a, a, a person is, is identified by the clothing that they wear. Like, you know, they're, they're placed in society. You, know, you go to a hospital and some doctors have short jackets and some doctors have long jackets, right? The ones with shorter jackets don't have nearly the amount of experience or authority that those with the long jackets have. So Joseph's very colored tunic, that, that actually identified him as royalty. And, and I would think that his garment in Potiphar's house identified him in a special way, right? Like, like this is his garment. Look, I've got his garment here. And so now that he, she's got his garment in her hands, she has everything she needs to get him back for day after day refusing her advances, to get her back from embarrassing her. And look at verse 13, sorry. 
When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. She is mad. She's embarrassed. She's humiliated. So what does she do? She lies. She sets him up. She twists the evidence. She makes it look like she's the victim rather than the pursuer. And when Potiphar gets home, she she tells him the exact same story in, in verses 17 and 18. But, but I like what Moses says. It says, she left his garment beside her until his master comes home. Do you see that? She left, verse 16, his garment beside her until his master came home. Not her husband came home, right? His master came home. And you can picture her sitting on the sofa Every now and then, going outside. Is he home yet? Is he coming home? Is he almost home? Oh, she sees him walking in. What does she do? She goes back on the sofa. And she puts everything just right and says, I didn't want to touch anything. This is a crime scene. Look what happened. Verse 17, she came, then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. You see that she doesn't put all the blame on Joseph. Who does she blame? Her husband. This is your fault. This Hebrew slave that you brought to us. The next verse says, this is what your slave did to me. Verse 19. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. And Joseph is innocent. He was innocent when his brothers sold him, and he's innocent now. And this is the second time that the clothes that identified him have now been used against him. And can we all agree that life is really unfair for Joseph? Can we all agree that, can we even get to the point where we say, you know, God, I think he's actually suffered enough. I mean, Joseph even tried to convince Potiphar's wife like why this would be a terrible thing to do. This guy is, is, is in the right and wrong is continually being done to him. And, oh, by the way, he hasn't suffered enough. He's going to suffer more. So where is God in all of this? What does the chapter say over and over and over and over again? The Lord was with them. The Lord was with them. We, we know that. He doesn't know that. My guess is Joseph would be a lot like me and you. My guess is that Joseph would be like, Lord, intervene, stop the suffering. That's what I would pray. And point number three is Joseph is faithful in his suffering. He was faithful in his suffering. That word he there at the beginning of that point could be Joseph was faithful in his suffering. It could also be God was faithful in Joseph's suffering. So not only was Joseph faithful to the Lord when he was suffering, the Lord was faithful to Joseph when Joseph was suffering. Look at verse 19 again. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and 
put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail, but the Lord was with Joseph. Listen, just the, the fact that, that Joseph is put in the king's prison is, is just demonstrating God's faithfulness to Joseph. The king's prison is a lighter sentence. If, honestly, if Joseph tried to defile Potiphar's wife, if he really genuinely did this, he should have been put to death. Like the law then said this guy dies for what he did to Potiphar's wife. It kind of makes you wonder if Potiphar believed his wife. Do you see why Genesis 39 stands in such contrast to Genesis 38? I mean, you look at this, this diamond of Joseph, just decision after decision after decision is, is I want to please Lord, the Lord more than I want to please myself. Whereas you look at chapter 38 and it's, I want to please myself more than I really want to please God. Remember when Tamar was thought to be immoral? Judah says she should be brought uh, out and, and burned to death. When Joseph was thought to be immoral, he was put in the king's prison. Joseph's a slave. Slaves don't go to the king's prison. They don't qualify for the king's prison. So I think it really speaks highly of Joseph's faithfulness in his labors. I also think it speaks highly of God's faithfulness to Joseph. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Now, there's, there's really two critical words here that you need to underline or circle in your Bibles. One is the word kindness, and the other is the word favor. Kindness is, is the Hebrew word hesed. And, and oftentimes you see hesed is translated as mercy or compassion or love, sometimes translated as, as faithfulness. And so they all relate to this Hebrew word, but but you can't just use one of those words to, to grasp truly what hesed is. Hesed isn't an emotional thing. It's not a feeling. Hesed actually meets needs. Hesed is, is love. Hesed is loyalty. Hesed in, inspires mercy and compassion. You, you see this word 250 times in the Old Testament. And each time it's expressing an, an essential part of God's character. And when God appeared to Moses, God described himself as abounding in loving kindness. You know what the word was? Hesed. He abounds in love. He abounds in faithfulness. He abounds in compassion. He abounds in mercy. That's the core of, of hesed. And so you look at this, and but the... the um, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. It's almost like kindness isn't a big enough word for what God was doing. By the way, that's why you can't really look at the Bible and say, well, God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament and a God of love in the New Testament. You know how it describes God in the Old Testament? Hesed. The core of God's covenantal love is rooted in hesed. And that same covenantal love is, is extended to, to you and, and to me through, through Christ, through a, a sacrificial love, which isn't hesed, but that's the New Testament. It's, it's agape. It's unconditional, sacrificial love. John 3, verse 16, For God so 
loved the world, agape the world, that he gave his only begotten son. So his love actually caused them to do something, right? For God's love, he loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates, or you might say God proves, God proves his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, which tells me that when we were at our worst is when Christ gave us his best. Okay, not, not on our good days, when we were on our worst days. First John 4, in this is love, agape, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so here's Joseph. He's experiencing faithful, steadfast, merciful love in the, by God in the midst of the most difficult time in his life. In fact, he's abounding in God's love. And the Lord is with him, but I, I'd be willing to bet that he feels abandoned. And the next word we see in verse 21 is the word favor. You know how we translate that word? Grace. Now you would think that, that, that God blessed him because of all the good things he did, right? No, God blessed him because of grace. He didn't earn the blessing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. And so because of God's unfailing love to Joseph, he gave him grace in the sight of the chief jailer, verse 22. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And that word responsible for it can be literally translated the doer of it. How many of you guys were like Joseph? How many of you guys are the, if I want it done right, I got to do it myself. He's responsible for it. That's what he does. That's the kind of guy he is. Now, commentaries say that Joseph probably suffered in prison for at least two years. And you think, well, yeah, but it's a king's prison, so it's going to be easier, right? Not necessarily. Look at Psalm 105, verse 17. He sent a man, he being God, he sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. He's in fetters. This isn't easy. He's in the king's prison, but that's not very good. But he says the Lord is testing him. So the brothers selling him was a test. Potiphar buying him, that was a test. Potiphar's wife seducing him, that was a test. Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him, that's a test. Potiphar imprisoning him, all of that is a test. Why? God's growing this boy. James 1 verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in, what's it say? Nothing. Remember A.W. Tozer is the one that said, before God can use a man greatly, he must first try him deeply. Before God can use a man greatly, he must first try him deeply. And our problem is that we don't want to be tried deeply. We want convenience. We don't want to learn from the tests and the trials of life. We would much rather just listen to a podcast. Listen, it is easier to read your blog than it is to read your Bible. It's easier to, to surf the internet than it is to serve in the church. 
It's easier to have friends on social media than do the hard work that friendships require. <clears throat> and the truth is that too many people in the church would rather spend countless numbers of hours conquering fake kingdoms on video games than to introduce people to King Jesus. And we, we take a pill when we have a headache because we somehow think that, that we should be the exception to the role of the curse of this fall. That we should never have pain. But I can tell you, if God is going to use you, then he has to test you to see how usable you are. And I get it. I, I don't want that either. <laughs> I'd rather the easy way, but that's just not how it works. It never has been. I mean, just think about Genesis. Abraham was tested. Isaac was tested. Jacob was tested. And you know what? It's just Joseph's turn. Just like us. I remember my mom when she was so sick. And I said, Mom, have you ever asked why me? She said, no. I've asked, why not me? Why not me? Verse 23. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. What a great close to the, pa the passage, isn't it? So it tells me, really, the, the bookends of this passage tell me that the passage is not about Joseph. It's about the Lord being with Joseph. Joseph is not the hero in this passage. The Lord is. So how do we apply, apply this? Three things. Number one, be diligent in your labor. Okay, be diligent in your labor. Joseph was a hard worker. Now you might go, yo, he's a hard worker because he's a slave. He didn't exactly have a choice. Well, that may be true in some sense, but well, I mean, can we all agree that he, he outworked everybody else? And he did it with a good attitude. And, and I would just say as parents, like I'm a parent, like we, we need to teach our kids to not just work hard, but work hard with a good attitude. I mean, we're, we're setting up our kids for a lifetime of failure if they don't know how to work, if they don't know how to deal with things when life is unfair. Like, we have to give them chores that are too hard for them, right? We have to require more of them than they think that they can do, and then we have to hold them accountable to do them. And, and as parents, like, we have to model whatever we want our kids to become. So if I want them to work hard, what does that mean for me? I can't work hard. If I want them to not be complainers, what does that mean for me? Well, I can't be a complainer. Proverbs 10, verse 26, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. You know, when, when you get smoke in your eyes, it just burns. Vinegar on your teeth, it burns. It's a pain. Lazy people, lazy people are a pain to be around. Yeah, the husband who won't help with the kids or care for his wife, he's a pain. No amens, just listen. <laughs> Lazy complainers, they're a pain. The person who watches other people work and says, well, that's not my job, they, they, they're a pain. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. You know, th listen, there aren't lions running around Israel. What's he talking about? Excuses. Sluggards make excuses. Ladies, lazy people make excuses. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm so busy. I forgot. I, I can't. I don't know how. I don't feel good. There's a lion in the streets. Proverbs 26, verse 14. As the door turns on its hinges, 
So does the sluggard on his bed. Isn't that good? This is a verse for all you snooze buttoners. Ten more minutes, right? Just the ten more minutes. I think it was Chip Ingram that says, sometimes it's just mind over mattress. Get up. <laughs> Proverbs 26, verse 15, the sluggard. By the way, the word sluggard, that just sounds lazy, doesn't it? The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. I am so tired, I can't even feed myself. We laugh, but then we say, can you get me the remote? Some of us are too lazy to get up and get the remote for ourselves. Second Thessalonians 3, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Paul's not saying he's not able to work. He's saying he's not willing to work. If he's not willing to work, don't let him eat. And if you let him eat, he's not going to work. If you keep him hungry, he'll work. Proverbs 16, 26. A worker's appetite works for him. His hunger urges him on. I, I don't remember which translation it says. A man's hunger drives him to work. And the reason so many people won't work is because they're not hungry enough. And they're not hungry enough because we keep feeding them. I mean, why work if you have a roof over your head and three meals a day and clothes to wear? And if anyone would have had excuses, it was Joseph, but he didn't. Instead, he was just diligent in his labors. When Potiphar saw him, he put all things under his charge, and, and the jailer does the same things. And as Christians, let me just say, it's a testimony issue. We should be the best workers. We should be the ones that show up early. We work all day long. We're not on our phones. We're not on social media, right? We stay late. We help others. We don't complain. We should be the best. Why? Because God commands it. He says, work at everything with all your heart as if working for the Lord and not for man. Number two, be steadfast against temptation. The first three words in verse 8 tells all that we need to know. But he refused. He didn't linger. He didn't click. He didn't try to handle it. He refused. And he gave reasons for refusing. First, he says, that would be a sin against my master who trusts me. Second is, it would be, it would be a sin against my conscience that convicts me. And third, it would be a sin against the God who saved me. And so when he's faced with his adulteress day after day, he doesn't listen to her. He, <clears throat> he deliberately avoids her. It reminds me of Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 when it says that Daniel had made up his mind that he would not defile himself. So Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself before he was tempted to defile himself. <clears throat> listen, don't flirt with sexual sin. Take radical steps to avoid it, to get away with it. In fact, Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. He's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about radical amputation. Like, Because if you pluck out your right eye, you know what? You can still sin with your left. Right? You cut off your right hand, you can still sin with your left hand. So he's not saying cut things off. What he's saying is whatever radical thing you have to do to, to stop this sin in your life, do that. Okay, trade in your smartphone for a dumb phone. Get a different job. Move out of that neighborhood. Whatever you have to do to be steadfast against temptation, like do that. 
Okay, the sexual sin is not one of those things where, where, where you try to handle it. Like that is the one you strap on your shoes and you run from it. You flee those kinds of temptation. And finally, point number three, be hopeful in your suffering. And listen, I don't get this from the text because it never tells me how Joseph felt. We know the end. He doesn't know. We know why he's suffering. He doesn't know. We have the cheat code. But we have to refuse to allow the disappointment of our circumstances to blind us from God's blessings. How do I do that? Be content with what you have. Be content with how God has blessed you. Be content for the promise that he gives that I will never leave you or forsake you. And I don't remember if I heard it this week or where I got it from, but it's switch your language, your language from what if to even if. When we worry, we worry in the what ifs. What if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Then what? But we should hope when we say, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord will be with me. Stop living in the what if and put your hope in the even if. Even if all of this falls apart, it'll be okay because the Lord is with me. Keep your eyes fixed on the blessings that he has given you rather than on what you don't have. And our hope is not that the circumstances change. Our hope is in in the returning Christ who will make all things new. Father, thank you for this man named Joseph who gives us so many good examples can't even imagine what he must have gone through and what he must be feeling and even his own doubts. God, I do pray that for any of us who are in really difficult, dark times, that we would look beyond those things and see the God who is always with us. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, who conquered our greatest enemy, and that was death. Thank you that though I suffer today, I will not suffer tomorrow. Take this time of worship. Be pleased as we sing to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's-